Hello listeners this is Bala and welcome to my podcast Great Minds Helen Keller was an American educator and advocate for the blind and the deaf She said alone we can do so little together we can do so much Today my guest is Dr Guy Culpepper a family medicine specialist in Frisco Texas and has over 36 years of experience in the medical field Hello doctor Welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So doctor, in one of the article that I've read, it says the newer generation of doctors coming through the system have been trained and exposed to healthcare differently without any independent physician as a role model. What's your opinion on this? That that actually is one of the key culture changes that is happening within medicine. We realize that training centers or typically classically hospitals that train the new physicians have one agenda which is to take care of the patients they have in the hospital their second agenda is to potentially develop new members of their medical staff in most of the primary care training facilities the physicians that are trained in that residency program are trained with the idea that they will be able to keep them on in some capacity as members of the hospital network the the idea that there are independent physicians out in the market and that there are other options available to these physicians is never put forward to the doctors you know a culture that develops is one that we're training you so that you can become part of our hospital network and uh many physicians unless they have a friend outside in the industry don't have a clue that there is another option are you saying that residency can be done only in the hospital or is that not being given in a primary care physician clinic the residency programs seek to find outpatient clinics to train the physicians but very few independent doctors that are out in the field will be able to open their offices for ongoing physician training. So usually what happens is a a uh, academic facility opens its own primary care clinic and serves the patients that come to that academic facility. Typically a public hospital for example where I trained at Parkland um they would have what they called the primary care clinic and it was to serve the patients that would have come to the emergency rooms and they need follow up or that would enter through government programs and it would be an effort to essentially simulate a primary care experience so what what do you think that needs to change independent physician should open up for the academic training Well, it, it, the time requirement for an independent physician to adequately train, I mean it's very limited. If you imagine you have an opportunity to uh learn from a doctor in a clinic, but does that doctor in a clinic have an opportunity to actually take the time to teach you? One of the challenges that we've discovered in the past 10 years in primary care medicine is very small margin between our overhead and our profit. very a very much a, a raising overhead that can't be passed on to the payers and a a shrinking budget and so to take time during the day to teach and train future physicians is just not in the budget of most independent practices the academic centers are supported by federal dollars and state dollars so to see a significant change in the way we can train future physicians we need to shift some of those federal and state dollars 
from the academic institution to an outpatient uh, training facility. I mean, actually pay independent physicians to help train the next wave of primary care physicians. Got it. On LinkedIn, referring to the COVID-19 situation, you mentioned that this is a storm that must cause a change and you are working on a new model. What's the new model and what outcome are you looking from the new model? Having been in practice for 32 years, there's a very small amount of retained earnings within a business such as primary care family practice. For the most part, as a culture, use every dollar that comes in to pay our staff. And then what's left after all of our overhead, the physicians would take a salary with very small retained earnings. And so, for example, at our very large practice, we would typically have about $50,000, maybe $100,000 left over at the end of the year to save for the business to start the new year with. We did for several years save up what we thought was a significant buffer to protect us against storm or crisis or an illness of one of our, our physician leaders. We thought that a half a million dollars that we had saved up over multiple years was a great buffer. We found out when COVID hit that that money evaporated in about four to six weeks. It's much like the old farming industry where if you have a bad crop year, the farm just goes out of business completely. That's one thing for a given business, for a community where, may, in our case, 25,000 people are depending upon us for their health care. If we go out of business, it has ripples that affect almost every part of the community. As primary care doctors, realizing that we actually were in threat, not just not making money, but actually closing our practices, we realized that we need a different model to preserve because there's no question that there will be uh, subsequent pandemics or crises that affect our country. We've just been blessed. It's, it's like preparing for a hurricane. And after you go through a hurricane and you think, okay, we, we may not ever see another one in our lifetime. And then the next year, another hurricane hits. We have to be prepared in primary care for the next pandemic and to weather it, or we could be left with literally hundreds of thousands of people across the country where they have no access to primary care. The model to sustain primary care has to involve some type of ongoing payment that comes directly to us. Whether or not we're spending that money right now on our patients. And what I mean by that is that insuring primary care is ridiculous. So let's be clear that In a given year, a typical primary care doctor might only receive anywhere from $200 to $800 on a patient, not an amount that most people would consider requiring insurance. And yet, as a culture, we've continued to include primary care within the insurance product. The insurability of a person is based on trying to protect them against catastrophic injury, unexpected massive costs, but you could set aside $1,000, $800, possibly less per person and say, okay, this is all you're going to need for your primary care and take it completely out of the insurance product. The new model has to involve a way to take that money and essentially prepay, much like I do in getting my haircut. I get my haircut at a local barber shop and I simply pay them a few hundred dollars a year each year on my charge card and then go in once a month to get my haircut. When you buy your car, you don't buy insurance for your gasoline. 
you know that you've got to set aside a budget each month to pay for the gasoline beyond you don't give them an insurance card at uh, the the Exxon station um, in primary care it's much the same way the the cost of collecting $20 copays and the cost of billing a patient $80 or $120 and then waiting 60 to 90 days to receive that payment is an absurd way of doing business at the primary care offices. I envision that employers who are facing higher and higher deductibles for their employees will set up a, a uh, health savings account. Uh, imagine a world where you have a $6,000 deductible, but uh, as an employer, you give that employee $1,000 for an HSA and tell them that 700 of that could be used directly to a primary care doctor with a prepayment and then when you go to that doctor there's literally no cost you go in every service you need a complete physical a telephone call a medicine called in um, guidance for your grandmother who's in town and you're not sure where to send her all the thousand things that come up in a primary care interaction would be covered under that base fee something really cool happens in that scenario Keep in mind that if you call me and you have a sinus infection and I've seen you for this a few months ago and you say, guy, this is exactly the same. Please send me that same antibiotic you sent last time. My challenge is that I need you to come into my office for an office visit because I need your $82 for that visit to support my infrastructure so that I'm even there to take your call. Well, in a prepaid model, I could simply tell you, Bala, let me call in that antibiotic. Let me take care of this over the telephone. You, uh, you're, you're covered, we got you. You don't need to come in because I've got my infrastructure protected by that annual fee. You start to find doctors not being dictated in their decision-making by the need for revenue, but instead by what is the need for the patient and what really is the needed medical quality issue here. That's the core of the model. Okay, so how complex is the change and where should it begin? Most things in our lives at first uh, change seems complex and after making it, you wonder why you did it before. The, the model in primary care is, is actually as now, we see patients from several multiple different insurance companies and multiple different uh, paying situations. Simpler model where the employer makes the commitment to lower cost um, by doing a direct to employer contract with a group of primary care physicians. You can have a network of primary care doctors as we have now so that if you as that employee find that this particular doctor uh, doesn't meet to your liking, there are other physicians within the network and you just shift your prepayment over to that different primary care doctor. At the same time, if in fact you're not an employed patient, then we need to have a cash program that is transparent because we, we, uh, we know that still in this country, there's about probably 20% of the population that may uh, be paying on a cash basis. About 40% of the population is covered typically by an employer insurance. And then easily the other 40% is covered by some form of governmental model, Medicare, Medicaid, VA. These are all models that can fit beautifully into carving out the primary care 
uh, from their insurance. Now, some people are going to be against this, largely the big expensive institutions. They are making uh, a lot of money by driving primary care decisions to refer only to them. So the, the, uh, the resistance that you would meet in this are the hospital systems and possibly some of the insurance companies that are making uh, 30, 40, 50% more than they're actually paying out to the primary care doctors. They will be hesitant. And so this, to go tie back to the COVID, um, you now have a motivation among primary care doctors to say, I can do this model without you. I can step outside of this and begin. And we're seeing that on a national movement with the uh, direct patient care, the DPC models, where doctors have said, I, I have to step outside of the existing system in order to actually make a change. Before, I wasn't motivated to step outside of the system. But now that I see I could actually lose my business, I am motivated to make a change. Now we are touching upon cost of care and how to reduce it. On LinkedIn, you have stated insurance company merge leads to mega cost. Hospital merge leads to mega cost. Primary care and an independent primary care can reduce the cost. How independent primary care would reduce the cost for a person seeking medical care? It's an excellent question, but of course, there are several questions tied into that. The first core concern you have, and that's the same one that I have, is how can I get your costs down? And so let's look at the things that raise costs. You heard me say a moment ago that if you paid me directly as your primary care doctor, your costs almost immediately go down 40%. If you pay your insurance company to pay me, your costs go up almost immediately 40%. My cost of processing a claim is anywhere from 20% to 40% more overhead for me and my office to work with your insurance company and go through accounts receivable and an insurance benefit verification than it would be for you to pay me directly. So immediately you can see as a consumer the logic that there could be a lower direct cost to see your physician and, and pay without going through an unnecessary model. But there's another way that costs are reduced. If I, as a physician, am a part of an institution, um, one of the large hospital networks, part of my bonus and part of my personal revenue is subsidized by the understanding that I will refer primarily to that institution. Now, what that means is when you need an MRI or when you need hernia surgery or you need physical therapy, I am motivated for selfish reasons, again, primarily cost, to refer you directly to the institution that I'm affiliated with. If I'm an independent doctor, I am now motivated to serve you, to save you money and to refer you to an institution or facility where quite possibly the value is better, the costs are lower. So as an independent doctor, I can lower your cost if an employer is self-insured and is paying for the cost of you getting an MRI. I can get an MRI for you for $600 uh, instead of $3,000. I can have a knee surgery performed on you at the same quality for $25,000 instead of $85,000. And the list goes on and on and on where consumers are paying 
double, triple, sometimes four and five times what they would have had to pay by going through um, a non-independent physician. The, the one who's going to be most interested in pursuing this model is going to be the self-insured employer. I, I believe the self-insured employer is carrying the weight right now of most of the costs of American healthcare. When we look at Medicare and you think, well, Medicare rates are the, the premium, right? Uh, let's just use a base of $100 is for this given medical service that Medicare pays. Well, hospitals for the commercial plan often demand uh, payments of $300 to $500 for the same service. Um, I'll give you another example. As an independent family doctor, if you have an EKG because you're experiencing some unusual chest symptoms, that EKG is about $35 in my office. If you have the same EKG at one of the area hospitals uh, in their emergency room, it will be 740. So the differences of cost are obscene, they're absurd, and, and they're not sustainable. We have aligned incentives, you as a consumer and as an independent physician, to find ways to lower that cost. Okay, if you give someone a job to do without proper tools, then don't expect a lot of work to be done. So isn't this the time that, you know, as a physician, and as a healthcare administrator, they join hands in implementing the changes that you're talking about with the knowledge, data, and technology. The, the spirit that we should all work together is of, course of, uh, is, of course, the proper spirit. The reality is, unless we have aligned incentives, we're not going to be working together. So we've got to find those things that we have in common. Philosophically, of course, it's critical that administrators hospital leaders, uh, insurance companies, and physicians all join together and find a common way of, of helping and working together. It is simply not going to happen. So what we've got to do is find where are those few commonalities, those few common pains that we have that we can solve in a common way. To me, the most in line, most aligned individuals in this market are the uh, employers who are paying extremely high premiums and the independent physicians who want to reduce them and the patients who are seeking quality care. We've all got the same agenda. Um, when you think, what is the motivation of a, uh, a large healthcare chain or what is the motivation and the alignment of a mega insurance company, um, not usually how can we lower your cost it's often more along the lines of how can they protect their stockholders they have to answer first and foremost to their stockholders and then down the line they have to serve the patients in such a way that their stockholders are, are positively affected but we don't have that noise um, at, at the uh, independent level doctor what steps have been taken so far and how far has this progressed? Well, there is a national movement with the direct patient care. Uh, recently, the Department of Treasury has uh, acknowledged that if a person takes payment that, let's say $700, if you take that payment out of your health savings account, it is not in conflict with the insurance laws that exist. 
Um, one of the barriers to this model has been uh, legislative laws where that paying the primary care doctor directly could be a conflict uh, considered a secondary insurance and it met with some possible legislative and legal entanglement. Well, at the national level, those entanglements are now being unraveled, making it possible. The other is just the education itself. The very fact that you and I are talking today reflects that there is a common need for consumers and the community to be aware of what are the problems with primary care and how can primary care help lower my costs. Why are my costs so expensive at a hospital? Why, you know, it's asking questions, Bala, like, why is it cheaper for me to buy my prescription for cash than it is for me to go through my insurance to get my prescription drug? We never had to ask questions like that before the last few years. You just knew that your medicine would be less expensive with your insurance. You presumed that the cost of your surgery would be less expensive with your insurance. Now, those are mythologies. Those are not true. We can have your surgery less expensive without insurance. We can have your prescription medication less expensive without insurance. And you can purchase primary care directly at a better value without insurance. And so the mere awareness of that is going to create some ripples in the market that will, I think, help us to align for change. That's great to hear, Doctor. Finally, What's your take on the second wave of COVID-19? How prepared are we as a community and as a country to face the second wave? That, that is, that's obviously uh, a, such a core question. I've been involved in the management of COVID-19 since the very beginning, since uh, it first started raising its head in March 15th. And I've tested now close to 800 patients in our area here in North Texas. Uh, we presently have record-breaking numbers of patients admitted to the hospital now here uh, in the, the second week of June than, than what we had during April when we were most afraid of it. The, the COVID has not gone away. Uh, there are uh, all likelihoods continuing ripples and waves. But one thing has changed. We know more about it. Each day we're learning more about the virus. And, and so the, there is there is of room for optimism. I have managed uh, 70, little over 70 patients with COVID, only 16 of which have had to go to the hospital. Um, the others we've been managed at completely at home. Uh, and and there, there seems to be a decrease in the severity of their illness over the past few weeks. I'm not sure why, I can't understand, but the people I'm seeing sick with COVID seem to be a little less sick. Now that's not to say that these isolated individuals, it, it seems like somewhere about one in a hundred are going to have a fatality of the actual symptomatic COVID patients. But, um, but the vast majority are recovering uh, with, with um, just a, a miserable week or two of illness. The um, preparation of our hospitals, we're over the curve now. We know that we have ventilators uh, adequate. We know that we have emergency room staff adequate. We know that we now have personal protective equipment that we didn't have in March and April. And we're more educated. I have less fear for COVID, just the same amount of respect. Very interesting, doctor. And I feel very confident to hear that we are prepared. 
and thank you so much for spending time with us and for enlightening us with your knowledge and research i am proud to be here for you thank you for talking with me listeners mahatma gandhi said be the change that you wish to see in the world the one who sees things differently they are not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo you can quote them disagree with them glorify them vilify them the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do thank you for listening meet you all in my next podcast <laughs>